Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for a very special two-part episode of the Public Narrative Podcast with Jamira Alexander. I'm joined here today with my very distinguished guests, Yassine Sabor and Dr. Kenneth Noll. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Public Narrative Podcast with Jamira Alexander. I am so excited about this conversation with two men who have been just incredible project partners, incredible thought leaders. Uh, I'll give them the opportunity to introduce themselves before we get into some uh, really heavy discussion. Go ahead. My name is Yassine Abdu-Sabor. Um, I am Program Manager of Storytelling and Education with Public Narrative, and super excited for this conversation as well. Hey everybody, I am Dr. Kenneth Knoll, and uh, I am born and raised in Chicago from the South side of Chicago. I am the program manager of storytelling in youth justice and public safety, and so excited to be here uh, and tell my story. I love it, I yeah. love it. And, and in fact, tell us more about yourself. Yeah, yeah, I'm born and raised again in, in the city of Chicago. Um, my narrative starts with a grandfather who only finished the fourth grade, and um, that was my inspiration. Uh, my family didn't have a very robust education, and so um, I was the last baby actually growing up in the house. It was my mom and my uncle, but now I'm the baby, the grandchild growing up um, in, in the house. My grandparents, um, again, my grandfather finished fourth grade. My grandmother finished high school, didn't go back to school. Um, my mother only finished high school and at the time went to beauty school, but didn't finish because she got pregnant with me. Um, my father finished high school and just got a good job afterwards. And so it was instilled that I got an education. And so here I am generations later and graduating on the south side of Chicago um, from Morehouse College in 2012, went on to Emory University uh, where I got my master's in 2015. And uh, from there, becoming a, a male educator of color, uh, which was one of the most impactful moments of my life. And then from there, I thought it worthy enough to go into um, this doctorate program for transformational leadership where I would transform and cultivate, recultivate the African-American community. And so that's a little bit about my story. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So my story, it starts, um, I would say, so I'm born, I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm from Cincinnati, um, but I was raised in Atlanta as a youth. So from elementary school, all of my elementary school was, was in Atlanta. And one of the things that I'm starting to realize more and more is how much that grounded me. And I had a sense of like who I was that was so strong in Atlanta because all of my teachers were black. So I was, I saw representation of myself through growing up and all of my formative years. And then we moved back to Cincinnati when I was in middle school. And from middle school on, I was in a mostly white um, school. And, but what I really started to realize was I knew myself a lot more than the people of color that were in this, this school that didn't really care about like our trajectory. But we went to this high school in this school system for a reason. And my, my mom, I'll never forget, she was like, this is the number one high school, public high school mm -hmm. in Cincinnati, in Ohio, actually. And you're going here so you can get to college and do everything you need to do. Yeah. And that's uh, that sense of grounding that I have from growing up in Atlanta and growing up around people that look like me and seeing all different facets of what I could be. I had a sense of 
belonging and knew exactly what I wanted to do and how to operate in spaces where I was the only person of color or the only black man in the room. And I, I just don't have any fault of like what I can do. And I, and it was based off of that. Mm. And also growing up in a household where my dad has been a teacher my whole life. Wow. Um, so the only black male I've ever had as a teacher is my dad. Um, and knowing that and how things started to align with the work that I ended up getting into after school um, is has just aligned so much. And I was like, I know why this is important. I know why I need to go into a field like this. So mm -hmm. after graduating high school in Cincinnati, I went to DePaul University here in Chicago and I've been here for seven years. Um, and after graduating with the degree in graphic design, I was looking for jobs and I was trying to figure out, okay, what, what route can I go? I had a couple offers on the table where it was like, I could design for this apartment building yeah. and like do some things that's really cool and look, look nice and I'll be proud of it. But then I had an offer at, for MBK Chicago, where it's like, I could be a part of something. My skill set can be a part of something that's super fulfilling that I know is important work that mm -hmm we can uplift narratives of boys and young men of color and actually make a difference in some of this and actually still use my skill set of design in this in this world so yeah. i i took that route and it's it's been super fulfilling to know that i can do and make change in a in a space that i didn't know i could until i stepped foot in it so i'm super happy with um that decision and knowing that I can put my skill set to something that matters a lot. Yeah. You all said, said a lot. And yeah. one of the things that stands out to me is how your parents, your grandparents, mm -hmm. though they didn't have a traditional education for your education, they set you on a path to explore what was next for you. Yeah. And it's right. just, both of you are just a testament of what's possible when you give Black men yeah. opportunity. Come on. Um, which leads me to want to know more about like what interested you in your work. Like you have, have had these experiences, mm -hmm. you understand how you want to pay it forward, but like talk more about the experiences that really shaped the work that you do. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll say for me, it was voice, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, as a child, uh, I was in elementary school. I won two, competi two competitions, excuse me, for Jesse Jackson, the oratorical competitions. Right. And I remember speaking at Rainbow Push, and I won them two years in a row. Uh, President Barack Obama was a senator right. at the time, and uh, Judge Mathis was here. And I remember speaking. Um, you are telling my age. I was in college when President Obama was senator. Go ahead. <laughs> telling my age. It's the opposite way, though. Yeah, right, right. You were you were the baby. I was middle school. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I was there telling, uh, uh, quoting my poem, am I, am I, am I a black man? Uh, am I not a black man? Which was inspired by Sojourner Truth's poem, uh, am I a black woman? Am I not a black woman? And so, um, I begin to quote that and the people, I literally got a standing ovation. That was the first time that I knew that I had a voice. Uh, it was this passion that it, that would, uh, just burst out of me every time I grabbed a Michael. I would, I would, I would be in front of people. But then, secondly, as the only African American uh, male out of um, 
about 30 high schools in 2000, 2005 and 2006. I won first at Navy Pier for the National Shakespeare Competition. And I remember my teacher at the time, Carolyn, uh, Carolyn Briggs Gall, she took me to this competition and she said, you're going to knock them dead, right? And so I won the competition, got to New York. They flew me out to New York. I won twice. I won third out of 16,000 people. And I was the only black boy up there. And I knew, quoting Shakespeare, that I had a voice. That, that makes up a whole lot, right? When it comes to why I'm in this work. Because I know that black boys around the world in the inner city of Chicago did not have opportunities like that, but God gave me one. And I say God, because that's what I brought to it. It was the passion that I brought to it. And so um, being a voice and knowing that I had a voice, I knew that I could speak not just for myself, but for little black boys in the inner city of Chicago who did not have a, vo have a voice. The Today sh uh, Show in New York, they flew me out and had me on television. WG WGCI 107.5, uh, came to the school to pick me up to hear about the awesome things. I was on the radio. I, I had a voice that was amplified in the city of Chicago, and I was grateful to be a representation for my friends, my peers, people that I knew would never, ever get a chance. So that that's what brings me to this table today. As an African-American male, number one, as a, as a doctor, right? As a doctor uh, 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 of transformational leadership, and we have to make a distinction because I'm not a PhD, but I'm a doctor, I'm a doctor uh, of transformational leadership. And so coming to this table, I am able to be a strategic partner. I'm able to give solutions and I'm able to do more than what other boys can do. Why? Because at the end of the day, I believe black men don't have the opportunity. So that's what brought me to the table. It was knowing that I had a voice. Yeah. I think my story is a bit similar in the root of it, where it's like knowing that we need a voice and knowing that uh, that most men of color and people of color in general don't have the opportunities to, as, as their white counterparts, as far as like resources built into the system. Yeah. And that's been something that I've seen like literally my whole life. So I, when I realized that I could make a decision to either do something with a purpose or do something that's a little more frivolous, I was just, I, I jumped right in. And it's it, it, it all goes back to what I was saying before, just that root that I had, this strong foundation of knowing who I am, like knowing the the layers that my ancestor has, ancestors have built for me. Like my, my mom's the first in, our, in my mom's side of the family to graduate from college. My grandma, Grew up in Birmingham during the civil rights movement, like went to school with Angela Davis. So I have so many like wow. stories from wow. that time. Like she knows, she knew the, she was in the same grade as the six little children, yep. the little girls yeah. involved in the church. Yeah. So wow. I, just that deep foundation of getting that education of who I am and who we are mm -hmm. and knowing all of this the disparities just why just widespread in the nation and really the opportunities to get into this work just came to my came very naturally i didn't really have to think about it but mm -hmm. knowing that everything i do is very intentional and with a purpose and i know what means a lot to my heart i know and i know that i am capable of anything so i'm super so when the 
when the opportunity comes, it's just like, this is what I want to do. I'm, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to use my skill set, yeah. build a new skill set yep. and come into this work because I care about it that much. So yeah, that's where it's... That's, that's so interesting in how you prepare for opportunities even before they come. come on. Right. And really knowing who you are and what you have to offer yep. is a very powerful thing. I was yeah. 23 when I moved away from uh, Chicago to the East Coast mm -hmm. and I began working with young people my same age, except our, our stories were not the same. Wow. You could not look at us and think that we were the exact same mm -hmm. age because of the circumstances. Yeah. And it gave me a greater appreciation for where I came from because here I had family and supporters who like were in my corner and yep. cheering me on and supporting me as I experienced different milestones. But these young people didn't have that. Mm -hmm. And so my job, I made it my business to then figure out how can I help them create that type of support that I grew up with. Yeah. Granted, I had 18 years of it and counting, but they, I have less than two years to work with them. Who do I need to rally around them? And it's interesting because I studied broadcasting in undergrad, but in that role, I needed more public administration experience. Yeah. And I never wanted to um, hold a, a, a role or a title without the understanding of how to best like maximize the, the opportunity. Yeah. And that led me to where we are now but in the work that we've come to do together, I've learned the importance of taking a step back and just allowing Black and Brown men sure. to be the face of it, particularly sure. as we talk about changing narratives for boys and young men of color. I come from a very large family. I have brothers, cousins, uncles, you know, very close with my father. But as much as I know of their stories, I could never, I could empathize with, but I could never truly know what it's like you know, when you all step outside every day. And I just, I, I the news that we've seen over the last two yeah. years or so, uh, George Floyd's murder, sure. Ar Ahmaud Arbery's murder, you know, it, it leaves me feeling like black and brown men, but black men in particularly are in an, are an endangered species. Yeah. And I don't believe that it has to be that. So how do you all navigate a country that mm -hmm. doesn't always love you, yeah. you know, and the realities of, police brutality, yeah. uh, emasculating Black men, um, just all the, the things that challenges what you know yourself to be, who you know yourself to be, and quite frankly, how hard you work to be who you are and not just putting on a face, but this is you authentically. How do you, how do you navigate that world? Oh man, where do I start? I, I, first of all, I would like to uplift the name uh, of a black man in Atlanta right now who is on a murder trial. And his name, his name is David Watley. Uh, just last week he was, and I'm gonna make my point, but just last week he was arrested um, and had a seven month old daughter in the back seat. The police officers who did not look like him, they arrested him. When he got out of the car, he said, I have, a, my daughter is in the car. They took him down to the police station. He said, my daughter is in the car. Hours later, nine hours later, that baby girl was still in the car. Nine hours later, they finally let, let him get uh, a phone call. He called the baby's grandmother, the, uh, the, the baby mama's uh, mother, called the mother, grandmother, and said, baby girl is in, in the car. Could you please go to the car? I told grandma where it was. She went, baby girl is dead. Here's what I'm saying. He was not heard and he was not believed. Yeah. And my problem in America is Black men don't have a voice, and we are unbelievable. We are unbelievable. Anything that we say, 
literally it's almost as if it's a if it's a facade or it's fake like it we don't necessarily bring anything to the table whereas our voice is good enough to make a solution and so i said that to say that the way that i've navigated this watching when you have a george floyd or you have uh, other black men who die with a knee on their chest or in their back and they're they're saying i cannot breathe that that lets you know that black men are not heard and so now as a black man when I step outside of my house, when I see another police officer that doesn't look like me, who may and he may look like me, but because he's a part of the system, I'm not sure what type of injustices that I'll face. And so the problem with that is um, with my voice not being heard in America, it's going to happen to me, too. It's going to happen to me, too. I'm a father of a, of a black little girl. I don't know if when I go to the uh, grocery store and if I get pulled over by the police officer, I'm going to make it back home. Most of the stories or the uh, Armand Aubrey, the, the, the stories that we see in the, in the media now is because a black man was running from another man, from a white man with a gun. It's because when a black man sees a white man with a gun or a police officer with a gun automatically in their head, they're saying, I'm not going to get home. So the only way for me to do is to run. Black men have always been the protector. We've always been the providers of our families and our community. So the only way to stifle the or, or to stunt the growth of a man is to take away his voice. And so we are living in that age now. How I cope with it is to keep talking. But here's the problem. If you keep talking, you talk too much and get yourself in trouble. But it takes a dangerous man, a black man to say, here I am. I'm going to put my neck out there. I'm going to put my foot out there and I'm going to defend myself and my nation, my community. And I'm going to keep on talking, whether it gets, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, I, I forgot a, a black man who did that was, was even killed because he kept talking and so that's how i cope with it i keep talking yeah yeah i think for me the way i cope with it um because because of what's portrayed in the media and what we see all day um is very negative about like black and brown men on tv is because i'll never believe it it's just something in my heart that will not let me not believe in myself not believe in my people it's just like it's it's nothing that can waver it mm -hmm. but when you when you see it a lot it'll get you down like it's gonna it's gonna take take a little chip off of you but what I try to do the most is have an outlet so similar to what Kenneth is saying keep talking about it mm -hmm. whatever I do in my art that's what I'm that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm always portraying is just like power, strength and just amazing things that come from black people. And and also therapy, like I you go. like recently I started therapy, maybe it's been it's been about a year and a half now. Um, but the what I did intentionally with that was make sure that I am creating more positive thought patterns because wow. because like we're talking about things, seeing George Floyd, seeing different things in media that are deliberate, like moments for us to be demoralized. It's, it can get to you, even if you have what I say, like I have this fervor of like, I'm not, nothing is breaking what I can do. No one, no person can tell me what I can and can't do because I know how powerful I am as a person. Um, but it'll get to you and you have to, you have to realize what your weak points are and and heal and yeah. be like okay 
I know I know this is taking a toll on me, whether I'm choosing to think about it or not, I still have to do something about it for myself to help better myself because I'm not gonna let anything stop me, not even myself. If it's that. if it's done from media or anything like that. So I think that route, um, knowing knowing that you're capable of anything, um and doing everything to make sure you're better as a person to be able to do that at the best way and also to be able to spread that out. So let other people know they're capable of Absolutely. anything. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and try to spread that passion because it's 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 infectious. It's infectious. Wow. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting because, you know, we've seen a lot of milestones um, crossed in, in having our first African-American um, president, mm -hmm. our first African-American uh, vice president, yep. you know, Black man, a Black woman. Yeah. Um, as exciting as those moments are, I'm always reminded of how far we have not Come on, right? Um, <laughs> you know, and and it it challenged. So it makes me think that just listening to you all, that each of us, you know, when we see different things happen in public space, yeah. it's like we have our assignment. We yeah. know what that is because yeah. it's connected to what we know our purpose to be. Yeah. But for me, when I see the opportunity, well, I see it as an opportunity, but before I see it as an opportunity, because therapy is a thing, prayer is a thing. Yeah. You know, being able to lean into what like feeds my spirit, even though I see things that try to crush it, yep, right. is knowing that somewhere I need to figure out how can there be more of us. Yeah. And if only given the opportunity, what does that look like? So I mentioned that in working with uh, young people my same age. Mm -hmm. When I got back to Chicago, I was working with different programs and working with like elementary school mm -hmm. kids. And I kid you not, I would see behavior that. I could see the adult I worked with on the East Coast mm -hmm. in that child yep. if it wasn't correct. Wow. Yeah. And that was a, a very powerful thing to experience because not only are you seeing someone else's future and how you can set them up for success, mm -hmm. but you have to recognize that you hold the power. If you can see it, forget about it, 100%. right? You, you can definitely achieve it yep. and really figuring out how, like, what steps do I need to take? How strategic do I need to be in making yeah. that happen? Yeah. But like, I'm listening to you all and it sounds like you all tapped into the power that yep. you, you, you hold at a very early age. Like, you talked about, like, you know, uh, those speaking competitions and mm -hmm. things and seeing the power that you have and being the only Black boy on the stage and representing for the Black boys here in Chicago. Yeah. But what other moments have there been in your lives mm -hmm. that have given you an understanding that either you hold power and agency in this area yeah. or something else is being unlocked for you? Yeah. Oh, man, that's a really, really good question. Um... I would say as a male educator of color, um, I did not want to be a teacher. I didn't know I was going to be a teacher in grad school. And this is the way that your journey is kind of set up, right? Uh, in grad school, I was teaching uh, refugees how to speak English. And uh, I was writing curriculums. Then I did not know that I would be going into uh, education. So after completing my master's, I knew that I was supposed to move back to Chicago, but I did not have a job lined up. And so there was a school that was about three minutes away from my house. I grew up literally born and raised passing this school all the time. And um, it's now called Catalyst Maria Charter High School. And um, I said to myself, I'm just going to apply. I'm just going to apply. I'm going to see if they take it. I think I can do something with teaching. I know how to write curriculum, things of that sort. 
And so uh, I applied. 15 minutes later, the principal called me and said, can you come and do an interview tomorrow? I, I did my best Morehouse move and I put on my good suit, my good old cologne, <laughs> and uh, showed up as a man of excellence. Yeah. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, by the time I got there, I had already written my curriculum. I had already written my lesson plans for the entire year within a day. And I sat at the table and they asked me, what can I bring to the table? I told them I cannot teach technology, but it is this course called Culture, Race, and Media that I've mirrored from Columbia College that, that impacted my life so much that I rewrote it for, for students of color. And I would like to bring that to the table and teach students of color who they are through the lens of media. And it was so impactful that they're still, te they're still teaching that course right now. But I, I'm making my story. I had a student that came into my classroom with a gun. And I tell this story all the time. And I remember, uh, I didn't know that the, the gun was in my classroom, but by the time he got into the hallway, put it in the locker, the security guards had found it. So I got reprimanded for it being in my class because we had to check them every time. And so, it, but this particular day, I didn't check the student. And so by the time that they were getting ready to expel him, brought mom to, to the school, um, he said to me, he said, Dr. No, or at the time I was Mr. No, he said, Mr. No, I didn't do it because I wanted to shoot anybody. We don't have food at home. And I did it so that I can sell this gun so that we can have, so I can at least give the money to my grandmother so we can go and, and get some food. This is my grandfather's gun and my grandfather is deceased. And I knew, Jameer, I didn't know what a peace circle was but this was one of my students that I would sit in a circle. I would say all my students in a circle and I would point out their strengths. And I would say, this is, this is not a behavior issue, y'all. She has vision. Y'all see that she sees everything. He has strength. Y'all see that nothing moves him. And they will all see each other's strengths. So by the time they were getting ready to expel him, the students advocated for him wow. because they had saw his strength. Wow. And so that's the power of affirmation that Yasin is talking about. I poured into it. I didn't know what it was, but I had it as a, as a child, mm -hmm. as my foundation, and I knew how to give it yeah. back. And so that brought me to the table. That's why I'm here now. That's why the work is so important mm -hmm. here in the inner city of Chicago. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, I think... I think seeing a lot of things align in the work that I've started to be a part of showed how much power that I have in the in the space. I always I always look at like the differences between who I'm in the room with. And usually I'm the youngest person in the room. <laughs> and I I kind of hold that as a badge a little bit. It's like I I can connect with a lot of what the young people in the neighborhoods are going through because I was in high school seven years ago like I and I felt that when we were launching the educator pipeline mm -hmm. and talking to the youth and seeing the way that they look up to me as somebody who who's almost a peer of theirs mm -hmm. in this space and I I hold that with a hold with the badge of honor because it's like I know I'm not doing this for me I'm doing this for for the youth that we're serving. And I'm always gonna put that to the forefront. Yeah. And every time that I do, I can I can feel how other people react to it when I'm uplifting their voices and like literally taking statements from what they said. Like, this is not what I said, this yeah. is what they said. And I, I know that using that and making sure people above me don't forget about that yeah. as a part of the whole yeah. strategy, because it's not about us. It's not about Come us, on. it's about, the people that we're serving. And I'll make sure in every single moment to use that 
as my badge of honor. And I know how much power that holds because it's only going to make a difference in whoever we're, we're serving. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. This is, this is incredible because you talked about black men being protectors, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. I mean, that it sounds like that's exactly what you all are doing yeah. in every role that you hold. Mm -hmm. I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, you, you all joining the public narrative team, which yeah. I am so excited. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm so excited to work with you all. Yeah. Um, you know, there there's been a lot of of shifts and a lot of transitions. And I yeah. think oftentimes the community will tell us this, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like they're used to great things coming to the community, resources, programs, yeah. and then eventually it goes away. That's right. You know, and I never wanted to um, if I had anything to do with it, I never wanted to introduce people to something that we couldn't sustain. Yeah. And I'm thankful for the mission of public narrative and that it is indeed rooted in stories and it's rooted in lived experiences yeah. Yeah. and connecting with media and just really leaning into how we can leverage storytelling to advance social issues. Yeah. And I'm thankful for one, having connected with you all through the work with NBK Chicago, which has been an incredible ride. Yeah. But even now, as we begin to work together, like give us some insight as to what you all are thinking, you know, when it comes to the work you'll be overseeing. Oh my God. Uh, you see, I'll let you go. Cause I got, I got a lot. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, it's so, it's a great opportunity for us to really continue the work that we were doing, which I think is really amazing. Um, and with the journalism pilot that we're planning to launch in the fall, we're, I have a lot of ideas of how, similar to what I was just talking about, how are we gonna uplift the voices of these youth and also empower them to do it themselves and just give them the platform to really tell their own stories and tell the stories of the community. And I, I don't want to share too much to like spoil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm just excited for all that we have planned yeah. um, and, and really the growth of it and what it could look like because it's so important. And like, I don't think a lot of people think about this, like 60% of journalists are white mm -hmm. and, yeah. and it's even, a, it's like, I think like 12% are, Latinx, and then it's even smaller percent that are black. Yep. So this is so needed that, and just giving the idea to young people that they can be journalists and should be journalists mm -hmm. because people aren't telling our stories the right way. Yep. As we're talking about George Floyd That's and right. all the um, other people that we've lost, we need to paint them in a more beautiful narrative yeah. and only someone who can relate to them can oh. tell that story. So oh. I'm super excited about oh. it. I will lean in a little bit on that. Um, I'm super thankful for uh, uh, Medill, the School of Journalism yeah. over at Northwestern yeah. University. It's their Teach for Chicago Journalism pilot that we are uh, supporting at the launch mm -hmm. at Butler College Prep. Now, they facilitated this at other places, but in introducing them to the concept of narrative change for boys and young men of color, yeah. they were eager to jump at the yeah. opportunity to join us along this ride. So. I, I'm I'm most thankful that we have partners who understand the word partner yep. and they reciprocate true partnership. Yep. Um, so I'm really thankful for the folks at Medill and Butler College Prep for just navigating this journey. Yeah. But even more so, you all being a part of this process. Absolutely. Right. It's been phenomenal already. And um, you know, of course, Jamira, you you are a black woman who who's given young black men an opportunity. Mm -hmm. 
um, to sit at the table. Uh, and sometimes black men are not invited to the table to grow in, in the space and be their brilliant self. So first, thank you. Um, I think one thing that I'm bringing to the table, and I'm, I'm like you're saying, we have so many ideas and we presented it uh, to public narrative. But I think one thing uh, with my bucket of work, and that's the youth justice and public safety piece, um, I, I want to become and I am an advocate for black men in the streets and Hispanic men in the streets. Our young boys are being shot and murdered every day. But I believe that the city has the wrong narrative um, as it pertains to our black boys and our Hispanic boys. Uh, there's some boys that are great in the inner city of Chicago doing amazing things, 4.0 GPAs, and we don't even know, and they live in the in the hood. And so one thing I would love to do is, um, I, I said this before, is there's, there's a judge in, here in Chicago said that that boys who are of a darker complexion, they are sentenced more harshly uh, than, than, than young men who are of a lighter complexion. So they're given a, 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 a very harder sentence. And so what I would like to do is just work with our pre-law students uh, here in the inner city of Chicago with, in collaboration with journalism and have them visit the courts uh, to retail what they see, imagery, all of the things that they see inside of the courtroom, along with this idea of case study reimagining or storytelling so that they can um, actually inform policy and, and to let people know, hey, this is not what we see. This is this is the story that's connected to this person on, on trial, but this is what we hear and what we see. And based on what we are researching and the, the way we're coming to the table as students of color in pre-law, we're going to retell their stories or help advocate for them so that when when we get in front of policy before I get to a university, I could already have on my resume something extremely powerful in helping to retell the narrative of a black boy, Hispanic boy that's on trial. Yes. Yeah. You all are so brilliant. Yeah. I am so <laughs> always impressed. Yeah. Eager to talk with you, yeah. learn from you, ideate with you. Um, where can how can folks connect with you on social media? On social media, you can find me at Yasin Llewellyn. Um at on Twitter and Instagram. Um, but you can also connect with me through email um, at Y-S-A-B-O-O-R at publicnarrative.org. Um, and yeah, those are that's the way you can connect with me on social media. Awesome. Well, me, you can just Google me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, really on uh, uh, Instagram, I am Dr. That's D-R period Kenneth Noel. Uh, Facebook, just Type in my name, that's K-E-N-N-E-T-H-N-O-L-E, -E, Kenneth Knoll. And I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn, Kenneth, Dr. Kenneth Knoll. Um, where else can you find me? That's that's only where I am. Uh, and if you want to connect with me via email, it is K-Knoll, N-O-L-E, at publicnarrative.org. All right, awesome. Yeah. This has been incredible. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all for joining us Absolutely. and sharing your stories. I know we're going to learn so much more about you all. Absolutely. And you all are going to see just how fantastic they are. Yeah. Um, I, again, I'm Jamira Alexander. This is the Public Narrative Podcast with Jamira Alexander, and I am so excited for our work together. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Bye.